David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. What up, brothers and sisters? It's 9.35 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is the 17th of June, a Monday in 2019. This is episode 108 of Bitcoin and, and we're just going to start off with this uh, uh, thread from Jeremy, or rather several underscores Jeremy. I, it's, it's a very kind of a difficult uh, Twitter handle to outline for you because I don't know how many underscores there are on that, but it's like at several underscores Jeremy. And he's talking about Lightning Network. And I want to read this to you because he says, our Lightning Network nodes... MSBs? No. It seems this question isn't going away, so let me try to explain. MSBs, money service businesses, are businesses that accept money from one person, then place that money in custody, then transfer that money to another person. They usually charge a fee for this service. The recent FinCEN document that circulated attempts to clarify this in relation to cryptocurrencies by discussing whether a wallet is custodial or not. So, If I were to start a business where you sent me Bitcoin, I received it, and then sent it to someone else for a fee, then I would be operating an MSB. But this is not what is happening when you use Lightning. When you own Bitcoin, what you really own is a UTXO, or unspend transaction output, that is, quote, locked with your private key so that only you can unlock it. In the above example, you would be able to send the UTXO going from you to me to the other guy on the blockchain it would be a transfer of Bitcoin. When you use Lightning, UTXOs do not travel along a similar path. They do not travel at all. They are suspended in time between two wallets via a type of transaction called a hashed time-locked contract, or HTLC. When Alice wants to pay Charlie through Bob, Charlie does not get Alice's UTXOs. In fact, Charlie does not get any new UTXOs even from Bob. The only thing that changes is the balance that Charlie and Bob are currently negotiating in their own HTLC. No money changes hands. The appearance of money changing hands is an illusion like a wave. The particle seems like they are moving forward, but they are only moving up and down. I know it is hard to understand Bitcoin and easy to be fearful when bureaucrats and the hopelessly uninformed try to scare everyone, but you must recognize that this technology doesn't work like money used to. You can't simply redefine what an MSB is and hope to successfully apply it to this new paradigm. It won't fit, and it would be impossible to enforce even if you tried. So, in conclusion... Forget spending time trying to read the tea leaves of some irrelevant apertichic and instead just write code. Everything is going to be just fine. So, oh, haven't run into that word in a long time. Apparatchik. Man, that is, that's some 
man, you're pulling out vocabulary, Jeremy. That's not fair, man. Anyway, so yeah, I'm 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 kind of on board with you know with what Jeremy's saying here. It's really gonna hard. It's really gonna be kind of hard for regulators in this particular case to fit a square peg in a round hole because uh, it's just so it's it's kind of like alien technology that we just found. And all of a sudden, a bunch of apes are standing around this thing trying to beat it with a bunch of femurs. And I just don't think it's going to work the way that they think it's going to work. But in either event, that's that's what Jeremy's take is on that. Now, I had mentioned at the earlier, you know, at the head of the show, like I try to always do, give it a time and date stamp. Today is the day that Craig Wright is supposed to pony up all the Bitcoin addresses that he has. Um, and then I think it's the 28th. He's actually supposed to appear before uh, Judge Reinhardt, or I think his name is Bruce Reinhardt, in, in the federal court in Florida and stand there and give testimony as to why it is that he's doing the things that, that he's doing. Um, and we'll get into we'll get into a little bit of that later. But first, it seems that somebody scraped uh, some video from the CoinGeek conference. And if you haven't seen this yet, it's a must-see. And, well, you know what? Let's just let Craig speak for himself here. Back in 2008, had this section on how identity worked in Bitcoin. I remember reading it probably when I wrote it. Rather breathtaking, isn't it? Uh, that's that's somebody who is unable to keep up the facade anymore. The, this, is, this is what happens when you try to keep up a lie. And that's what Craig's been doing, and he's been doing it for so long that he's starting to mentally break down because you, when you are trying to maintain a lie, you're spending an awful lot of neural energy making sure that what you say is congruent with the lie that you've been telling, okay? And after a while, I, I don't really believe, now I'm zero proof and I'm not a neurologist and I'm not a, you know, a brain physiologist, but it seems to me just through, you know, living years of life that the human being is not designed to maintain a lie, not, not in the long term, and that eventually, eventually something's going to slip. And that was in front of everybody. And now hopefully, you know, if you haven't seen, uh, heard this yet, uh, now you have. That was Craig Wright basically saying that he read the white paper, catching himself, and then saying that he wrote the white paper. So I don't know what else to say, but he's going to get his day in court real soon. And we'll just have to see where that shit show goes. So uh, speaking of shit show, let's talk a little bit about Libra. This is out of the block uh, crypto. This is uh, Frank Shaparo and Aslin Keeley writing on June the 14th. Facebook has been quietly building out its cryptocurrency for over a year, and it looks like that time has been well spent. Uh, enlisting the support of some of the most prominent companies across payments, retail, and technology as recently reported by the Wall Street Journal, Facebook's cryptocurrency will be governed by a consortium of firms known as the Libra Association, which includes the likes of Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal. 
The block has gotten its hands on consortium marketing materials and can now report dozens of firms not previously known to be involved, including investors such as Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures, cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase, and nonprofits including Mercy Corps, Calibra, a subsidiary, subsidiary of Facebook formed to oversee the social media giant's crypto efforts, is also among the founding members, according to a source familiar with the matter. Here's the full list of Libra Association founding members, which Facebook is set to officially announce on Tuesday. And it gives a it gives a, a picture. There's a you know sort of a screenshot here of all the stuff, and I'm not going to go through it because all these it's like Stripe, Uber. Pay you, PayPal, which was already mentioned, Zappo, and like a whole bunch of companies that I'm not really, you know, I ain't thrilled about just as companies themselves. But anyway, so continuing on, a person familiar with the situation said Facebook charged each member $10 million U.S. to manage their own node, which allows members to access and view the network. Originally, the company had ambitions to get Wall Street involved, but found a lack of interest among institutional giants like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. It is still looking to have 100 members in the governing association, the person said. So here's everything we know about the project. This funding from the consortium members will back the coin, which will be pegged to a basket of currencies. If successful, Facebook could net $1 billion U.S. from the 100 companies it hopes to include in the project. Each of these nodes will also reportedly get a seat in the Libra Association as node operators, sending a representative to the consortium. God, this is just reading dystopian already. Uh, reports of a Facebook cryptocurrency began circulating in May of 2018 when Cheddar reported the social media giant had begun looking into blockchain nearly a year prior. Facebook then announced David Marcus, vice president of its message app, <clears throat> messenger app and once member of Coinbase's board, will lead its blockchain efforts. Prior to Marcus's appointment, Morgan Beller, a member of Facebook's corporate development team, was the only employee studying blockchain. Since then... Facebook expanded the project to talk of a stablecoin increased with each step the company took in the blockchain world in May of this year. Facebook registered Libra Networks LLC in Geneva, Switzerland, where it is working on blockchain developments according to its according to its register. BBC later reported that the company is looking towards a Q1 2020 launch of the coin and has plans to begin testing it later this year before launching in a dozen countries. Ahead of the launch of its white paper, rumored to surface later this month, the company has been posting blockchain job ads. Additional openings were posted this week. The coin may be used as payment for messaging apps, among other things. In December, Bloomberg reported the coin would let users transfer money through its WhatsApp messaging service. The New York Times reported a few months later in February of this year that the project had moved to a place where Facebook was discussing selling it to consumers and was in talks with crypto exchanges. If that's true, there is a demand, according to the study from LendEDU, which found the coin could entice new users to crypto and could be bolstered by use through Facebook's marketplace feature. Through a white paper, though a white paper has yet to be published, concerns of regulation have already arisen. In the wake of the Wall Street Journal's report that Facebook was recruiting investors to launch its cryptocurrency, U.S. senators on the banking committee addressed an open letter to Facebook found Mark Zuckerberg inquiring how exactly the coin would work among other concerns. The Commodity Future Trader Trading Commission 
also told the Financial Times it was in early talks with Facebook and that no formal application had yet been submitted. CFTC Commissioner Christopher Giancarlo said the body is still considering whether a Facebook cryptocurrency would fall under his agency's jurisdiction. Facebook has also brought on UK standard chartered lobbyist Ed Bowles, or Bowles, as its London-based director of public policy to push the cryptocurrency, according to the Financial Times. Below is our own map of Facebook's Libra Association broken down by industry. All right, so the industries represented are blockchain industries, e-commerce industry, investment firms, nonprofit, payments, rideshare, social media, clearly. And Facebook is the only thing listed under social media and telecommunication. So, and, and that's really important because this is the, there's three here. There's bookings, holding, uh, online travel, telecommunication, whatever the hell that means. But there's Iliad, which is the French provider of telecommunication services. And there's Vodafone, a very large multinational British telecommunications company. So, uh, that'll do it for that article. But, uh, yeah, Libra coin, I guess they've, I guess they've finally just gone ahead and named the damn thing anyway. So you can do with that what you will. Um, okay, there's some B cash drama going on. There always is, but I'm uh, reading from a uh, tweet from Skylark underscore Bitcoin. And Skylark says, end of the road for BCH development. Even Roger has tapped out. And there are three screenshots of uh, so of a coin space, uh, sorry, a coin spice, uh, chat. And there's some, some people in here, uh, that are like Chris, Chris Passy is in here, rise is in here and Brent Rickner is in here in, in either event. Let, let me just go ahead and read this in case you haven't seen it yet, but this is a discussion about Bcash and it just, I'll start at the top, even though it may not be a little bit out of place, just bear with me, but don't <clears throat> rise says, but don't be that. Please explain to me because I miss the party guy. Chris Passia writes back, says, uh, well, if something is done, Bitcoin ABC will, sh- it will shut down and BCH will cease to exist. So you'll be gone either way. Distributed Bit says, I don't see why donations from large entities can't work. For instance, the Bitcoin.com initiative we have seen recently rate to raise funds. Chris Passia says, nobody is donating. That's why. Uh, Brent Rickner says, TLDR, Omri complained about structured funding and no one knows how to solve the problem that doesn't involve centralization of power or requires trust. And Chris Passia writes back, that fundraiser probably won't hit the goal and the goal is an order of magnitude less than what is needed. Now, I'm not going to go on. It... it, because this is just what this is, is a shit show. And what's going on here is that it looks like there's like maybe two or three people working on BCH at minimum. I've heard numbers bandied about that says one or two that's trying to keep the whole load. And at most I've seen six or seven that's trying to do all of the work on BCH. Now there, if I can find this one last thing, let me see, hold on. Yeah. It's sorry. I was looking, it's not in this in this one, but one of the things that I saw being said was that, um, well, that, that Roger is funding like one developer and like, it's just not, 
nobody's nobody's donating to this project. They don't have the manpower. They're not even able to keep up with the backporting that's coming out of core. So they're having to actually keep up with core at the same time that they're trying to do whatever it is that they do. And it's so now they're just basically getting whittled by both whittled down by both sides. Uh, Rogers put, put all of these people at risk, including himself at, I mean, great financial risk. There's also mental risk involved here because if these people have spent this much time working on this thing and then they just end up throwing down and walking away, then they're just going to be looking at this as a waste of, you know, know, how much life of theirs did they waste on this stupid project? Um, I don't see this. I don't see any of this coming out of the fire anytime soon. This looks pretty bad. So BCH is probably either going to be a zombie coin at one point or another, or it's just going to, you know, well, I don't think it, I think it, I think the worst thing that can ever happen to a coin once it's born is become a zombie coin because we, we, I mean, that the whole was it BitConnect token is still being traded as far as I know. And that thing has been defunct for years or for months, you know, more than a few handfuls of months. And in, in either event, this doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. So there's all of that. <sighs> God. Um, and then they're on the other side of the of the uh, Pacific Ocean here. We got Jihan Wu and Bitmain News out of Coindesk. This is Wolfie Zhao writing for Coindesk uh, June 17th. That's today. Bitmain lawsuit seeks millions from staffers who fund, founded rival mining pool. Cryptocurrency mining giant Bitmain is locked in a legal battle with three former employees who started a rival mining pool. Bitmain, the owner of BTC.com, the world's top Bitcoin mining pool by hash rate, is suing the co-founders of Poolin, the seventh largest pool, for allegedly violating a non-compete agreement, and it's demanding $4.3 million in damages from one of them. For their part, the three Poolin co-founders say they were no longer bound by the non-compete since it was Bitmain that invalidated their contracts for failing to pay compensation on time as agreed. The case offers a rare window on the inner workings and employment practices of Bitmain, one of the blockchain industry's largest and most powerful companies, not for very much longer. Bitmain makes most of its money from selling mining equipment, according to financials disclosed during the firm's abortive attempt to go public, but it also operates mining pools, essentially software products miners use to split rewards. This service accounted for $43.2 million U.S. of Bitmain's revenues in the first half of 2018, the most recent period for which data is available, compared to the $2.7 billion U.S. of hardware sales during the same period. There are six lawsuits pending in the Beijing Haydn District Court. The three Poolin co-founders, CEO Zahibo Pan, COO Fazu, and CTO Tianzhao Li, each sued Bitmain preemptively, seeking to be released from the non-compete. Bitmain, in turn, countersued each of them, claiming they caused significant losses to the company after leaving by operating a directly competing pool. Aside from seeking damages, Bitmain asked the court to order the pool and executives to resume honoring the non-compete agreement. The dispute has largely escaped public notice, but video footage recently became available of an April 30 hearing between the two sides made their 
when the two sides made their respective cases. The video only showed discussion of the case between Pan and Bitmain. As such, exact details regarding the other two former employees were not clear until now. The main dispute in these cases boils down to the roles of the three Poolin founders played in Bitmain's flagship mining pool, BTC.com, and the non-compete agreements they signed when they decided to leave Bitmain. In a WeChat post written by Zhu and published by a Chinese crypto media outlet in January commemorating Bitcoin's 10-year anniversary, he briefly recounted the trio's work at Bitmain. Zhu wrote that back in 2015, the three, while still focusing on Bitmain's original mining pool, Amppool, proposed to launch BTC.com as a parallel service within Bitmain. The idea was not initially supported by Bitmain. Zhu wrote, and the three had to develop and roll it out on their own using Pan's own capital at the beginning. In 2016, Pan open-sourced the code of BTC.com, which helped lower the threshold for anyone that's interested in launching a mining pool business. The three collaborators left Bitmain around mid-2017. Under the non-compete agreement, Bitmain would pay monthly compensation to Pan after his departure of about $2,700 for 24 months, and in return, prohibit him from specifically operating a Bitcoin mining pool. The compensation for the other two under such agreement was not clear from the court video. After their departure from Bitmain, Pan, Zhu, and Lee launched Poolin as a mining pool for multiple cryptocurrency assets in November of 2017. They didn't launch a pool service for Bitcoin until July of 2018 when they mined Poolin's first block of the largest cryptocurrency by market cap. It has since grown into one of the largest Bitcoin mining pools based on facts agreed on on by both sides of the case and represented to the court. As of February the 14th, Poolin was the third biggest operation by hash rate in the world. Wow. After BTC.com and Amppool, all told, miners connected to Poolin had mined 26,825 Bitcoin worth $220 million at today's prices. Notably, Poolin's share of the hash rate has dropped since then to about 8.2%, and its rank has fallen to number seven based on the current distribution of Bitcoin's network computation. Subsequently, Bitmain alleged that such conduct violated the non-compete agreement and demanded that Pan return all the paid compensation as well as a fine of $667,000 for reneging. Further, Bitmain's lawyers argued at the hearing that the revenues Poolin generated from mining the 26,825 Bitcoin should be considered a profit made by violating the agreement, which should be paid back as a loss to Bitmain. Quote, based on the agreement, if it's difficult to calculate all the direct and indirect loss for Bitmain due to Poolin's violation, then the loss should be calculated based on the profits made by the violating party, end quote, one of the lawyers said. As of February 14th, the total profits for Poolin would be 26825 Bitcoin times 4%, which was their <clears throat> handling fee, and times Bitcoin's price at the time, which was 24518 won, or right around $3,500 U.S., the lawyer argued. That, added to the alleged fine, would amount to more than 30 million won, or about $4.3 million U.S., but lawyers representing the Poolin founders argued to the court that Pan was not obliged to honor the agreement and thus should not be ordered to pay damages. Pan's lawyers said in the hearing that Bitmain failed to pay Pan the agreed-upon compensation on time, citing lines from the agreement that if Party A, Bitmain, 
did not pay the compensation within a month since Party B, Pan's departure, it would mean Party A voided its obligation. Actually, I would say invalidated its obligation or something. Well, yeah, voided, I guess, works. Whatever. Further, Pan's lawyers argued that the transaction fee Poulin received doesn't necessarily translate to profits of the company because until the date of the hearing, the firm had not turned a profit. In addition, the fact that Poulin successfully mined 26,000 Bitcoin also does not necessarily mean it would be a loss for BTC.com, the lawyer said. There are a lot more Bitcoin mining pools in this network. It's not just Poolin versus BTC.com. Even if Poolin didn't operate its Bitcoin mining pool, it does not necessarily mean Bitmain will be able to mine those coins. So far, it's not yet clear from the public record whether the court has made a judgment or when it will. The judge asked at the end of the hearing if there was a way for the two parties to settle the case. Lawyers from Bitmain declined to discuss that at the court and suggested waiting until after the hearing adjourned. Bitmain declined to comment on or provide further clarification on the status of the cases. Poolin executives did not respond to Coindesk inquiries by press time. This is not the first time Bitmain has had a legal dispute with former senior executives. In 2017, it sued Zhang Yang, a former Bitmain chip designer, <clears throat> director who left to launch Bitwe a rival mining equipment manufacturing over patent rights infringement. Bitmain initially demanded damages of 26 billion yuan or $3.8 billion U.S., but later reduced the claim to 380,000 U.S. In 2018, the court in Xinjiang <clears throat> that oversaw the case dismissed Bitmain's complaint after Yang successfully revoked Bitmain's patent over the technology in dispute. And I remember when that happened and wow, that was that was interesting. So anyway, Bitmain's current um, business model is to fuck up and then sue uh, its former employees. That apparently is is a high quality business model. Um, and here's a, another apparently high quality business model. Uh, Binance has released a blog post, and this was at today at eight o'clock. I assume eight o'clock a.m. Central Daylight Time, introducing. Bitcoin pegged token on Binance chain. Hmm. We are launching tokens on Binance chain that will be pegged to leading cryptocurrencies. Oh, mm, okay. Mm. This will start with a Bitcoin pegged token that will be traded on Binance and proposed for trading on Binance DEX. Binance will issue a number of crypto pegged tokens on Binance chain. BEP2 token format in the coming days, starting with BTCB, a BEP2 token pegged to Bitcoin. Peg tokens such as BTCB are 100% backed by the native coin in reserve, which is Bitcoin, in BTCB's case. The reserve addresses are published for anyone to audit. The blockchain offers a much easier way to audit a crypto reserve than a traditional bank balance tether. A trading pair will be created on Binance.com between the PEG token and the native coin. Large buy orders will be maintained on the trading pair on Binance.com with a price spread of around 0.1%. This provides an easy way for anyone to convert from the PEG token back into the native coin on Binance.com. If this buy order is filled, a new order will be placed while an equal amount of funds will be deposited from the reserve address into Binance.com. The sum of the buy order and the funds on the published reserved 
<clears throat> published reserve address will be bigger than the total supply of the PEG token, ensuring there is always 100% backing. The main benefit of offering crypto PEG tokens is that obviously this makes available to Binance DEX traders the many coins that have their own blockchains and aren't native on Binance chain. With the increase in the selection of tokens available on Binance DEX, there should be an increase in trading volume and liquidity. This would further increase the utility value of Binance DEX. While this approach is more centralized than atomic swaps, we believe it provides a higher degree, degree of ease of use to most traders. And most traders are already trusting Binance.com to hold their phone, funds anyway. Uh, I, I just hate that sentence. And most traders are already trusting Binance.com to hold their funds anyway. Yes, we know that. And then when y'all get hacked, they lose their money because not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Continuing on, compared to fiat tethering, crypto can provide a high degree of transparency so that anyone can audit the reserve publicly anytime they want. We note that this centralized approach is not exclusive to cross-chain atomic swaps or other decentralized approaches, which can also be implemented in parallel. There are a few atomic swap solutions already being developed as we write this, and we always welcome more developers to join. We encourage project teams to follow this approach and issue peg tokens of their own coins on Binance chain. <laughs> Sorry. For coins already listed on Binance.com, we will try our best, no guarantee, to facilitate a peg native pair. Uh, for BTCB, the BTC pegged token on Binance, the BTC reserve address is, and then they give the address. We, <clears throat> we have just reserved 9,001 BTC and minted 9,001 BTCB. A trading pair on Binance.com for the pair will follow in a day or so, and we will issue a proposal for DEX listing as well. Happy trading, the Binance team. Oh, okay. I mean, it's not terrible, I suppose, but, you know, it's just, I, I think in a way it kind of makes it easier for people to screw up and, and you know, lose their money because of the... There's something to be said about uh, there's something to be said about UX in general. The more dangerous something is to do, and I consider trading to be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Right? If you're, I guess, Tone Vase or somebody like that, or somebody who does it for a living, then yeah, by all, you know, I'm I'm not bitching at those guys. I am, you know, I just like to be, you know, send words of caution to people who think they're just going to get rich by trading shit coins all day. Uh, and you're not, you're going to get wrecked. You're going to lose your money and then you're going to mortgage your house or, or, or raid your kid's college fund or whatever it is that you got hidden under your mattress. And you're going to get wrecked again because you don't know what you're doing. Now, the neat thing about user experience is the harder it is to use something, the less likely somebody is to use it. And this comes back to bite Bitcoin in the ass because right now Bitcoin ain't the easiest thing in the world to use, but there it is. The easier you make something, the easier, the more likely it is that somebody might get into it. And I consider, a, you know, not being, not having these kind of tools make the user experience a little bit harder for, you know, traders that don't know what they're doing to don't know what they're doing all the way to losing their house, right? So, like I said, there there is something to be said about a harder UX, but that's just my opinion, man. Um for experienced traders, I'm sure this is going to be a great tool. Uh, we're going to really have to dig into this to, to find out where it goes. But for now, we'll just leave it laying there. 
Continuing on up the stack, we have uh, South Korean current cryptocurrency exchanges to be held liable for any lost assets in the future. This is out of the block crypto, uh, June 17th, 2019. Five cryptocurrency exchanges in South Korea, including Bit. Bithum have changed their terms of service to state that they will be liable for user losses after a cyber attack or system malfunction, regardless of whether they were willfully or grossly negligent. The move follows a recommendation from the Fair Trade Commission last year. Previously, the exchanges would only pay compensation if user funds were stolen as a result of the firm's negligence. Just last year, 35 billion won, or about 30, $31.5 million U.S. in cryptocurrencies were stolen from BitHum. So, yeah, I, could be interesting. I mean, I guess what that does is maybe it's cheaper for them to just go ahead and pay it out than to uh, prove that they weren't negligent because lawyer fees are, are really costly and they actually have to go to court and prove all that. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe it's just easier for them to just say, you know what, we'll just, we'll just go ahead and pay you out. You go shut up and, and, you know, you know, take another spin at the wheel later, but you know, there it is. I mean, in in some cases it kind of looks like they might be taking some responsibility in, in in my view, I think it's more likely that they're probably just saying it's just too much work to, to prove that we were non-negligent. So anyway, um, we have out of the eight, uh, Nikai Asian review, and I'm no, hopelessly not going to be able to pronounce the gentleman's name that wrote this, but, uh, 100 Japanese manufacturers harness blockchain to share data. Please don't. Sorry. The please don't was me. <clears throat> Uh, Mitsubishi Electric and Yasukawa Electric are among 100 major Japanese manufacturers set to share production data with each other to improve efficiency using blockchain technology to ensure their information remains secure. Manufacturers have closely guarded the data gathered at the factories because it contains know-how directly linked to to competitiveness. But now they believe sharing that data securely will bolster performance. This project lets participants decide how much data to share, whether to share it with one or more companies, as well as whether to charge a fee for the information. The project expected to begin next spring will be overseen by the Industrial Value Chain Initiative, a manufacturer's group that launched in 2015 to promote the, quote, Internet of Things in Japan. Companies previously have worked on their own to make use of Internet of Things data in factories. DMG Mori and other machine tool makers that are highly competitive globally are expected to join. Yet the project aims to lift Japan's manufacturing sector as a whole by attracting not just big corporations with advanced production technologies, but also smaller players that are unable to invest large sums. The sharing will include product design data, the status of production equipment, and quality inspection information. For example, parts supplies could begin mass production faster if an electronics manufacturer shares the data from computerized numerical control machine tools. If machine tool makers and their clients share equipment usage data, they could gain a better grasp of how parts wear out and maintain the gear more efficiently. They also may be able to predict when machines will break down so that parts can be exchanged in advance, reducing downtime. Blockchain technology, which underpins virtual currencies through a shared digital ledger, will be applied to this project. It is expected to lower the risk of data leaks compared with managing the information on servers as well as reduce operating costs. 
I kind of don't even know what to say about this. I, I think the proof is the proof on this is going to be in the pudding. I get it. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I just think this is an improper use of blockchain of, of blockchain technology. And this goes to the fact that, you know, I don't know, the whole leaked data thing that they're talking about is not, I haven't, I'm not quite convinced that that's going to be completely secure on a blockchain because as of right now with a block explorer, I can look at many blockchains. So if they're, if it's going to be a private blockchain, then what they would probably want to spend their money on is just really good security on a shared database. And I, again, I don't think you need a blockchain for this, especially considering that they're, they're one, they're thinking that the, that the blockchain is secure. It's like all the blockchain is securing is that the entry you made of data, let's say 10 blocks ago, is probably not going to be reorganized to be able to lie to the other partners in in the thing where you'd be able to give them false information. Like they'd be able to say, hey, there's we see that there's going to be 1 million units of this produced next year. So, you know, we're going to make decision X where, and then somebody goes in and changes that or, or somebody had actually falsified that information and it's 10 times less. And you can, at that point, it's like frozen concentrated orange juice futures and shit like that, where you're waiting for the, the actual report of how many oranges were actually produced in Florida so that you can set the prices. And if somebody manipulates that price or manipulates the data going in, then you can corner markets and do shit like that. So, I mean, I don't think it would be that bad, but somebody would be able to game, game that system. And so blockchain would only guard, you know, for, in my opinion, blockchain would only guard against you being able to change the information. I'm not all that sure that you can secure the information from leakage, which is what these guys are talking about. In either event, we'll have to see what they actually do. But uh, in the meantime, let's look at uh, this. There's a snippet that I found weird, and this is, again, out of the block crypto. But this is on June 14th. Facebook's subsidiary Calibra might have a domain name. Facebook subsidiary Calibra may have a registered domain. The page Calibra.com contains the logo used by the stablecoins governing group, indicating the domain is likely owned by the social media's giant's subsidiary. (coughs) Or, uh, sorry, subsidiary. Though the site contains a 404 error message, the source code reveals clues about the coming currency. It contains text of many fiat currencies across the globe, including the U.S. dollar, the euro, the Venezuelan bolivar, why, the Zimbabwean dollar, why, and the Haitian gourd, among others. While it's unclear what the inclusion of these fiats means for the crypto for the currency, the code also bolstered reports that the currency can be used on messaging applications, including Facebook's WhatsApp, Instagram, and Messenger.com, also appears in the source code. Bloom, Bloomberg reported last year that Facebook's coming stablecoin could likely be used as a payment method within its messaging services. The source code also contained references to seemingly random businesses. It's unclear why corporate entities such as KFC Thailand, Norwegian Cruise Line, and Best Buy Mexico would be included in the code. They are not founding node holders, nor have they been reported to be involved in Facebook's blockchain efforts so far. So there you have it. 
just a, a bit of a mystery. And uh, we'll go ahead and close out the morning roundup with this from Bloomberg. JP Morgan says importance of Bitcoin futures has been understated. This is June 14th and written by Joanna Ossinger. Bitcoin futures may be more important than many in the market appreciate, according to JP Morgan Chase. Recent reports from cryptocurrency asset manager Bitwise and the Blockchain Transparency Institute indicate that only a small percentage of reported trading may be authentic. If only around 5% of reported May trading of $725 billion is genuine, it would imply that the actual volume of Bitcoin trading on cryptocurrency exchanges in the month was around $36 billion. J.P. Morgan strategist led by Nicholas, no way I can pronounce his last name, wrote in a report Friday working with data from CoinMarketCap.com. That compares with an estimated aggregate volume of $12 billion on the CME and CBOE futures contracts. J.P. Morgan said itself a jump from April's $5.5 billion and a first quarter 2019 monthly average of $1.8 billion U.S., a major implication of this is that, quote, the importance of the listed futures market has been significantly understated, this gentleman that whose name I cannot pronounce wrote. Quote, the report by Bitwise credits the traded futures as an important development in allowing short exposures that, en- <clears throat> that enabled arbitrageurs in appropriately engaging the arbitrage and that the futures share of spot Bitcoin volumes increased sharply in May and April. Bitwise said in the report filed with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission in March that some exchanges inflate their trading volumes to appear higher in rankings, which can attract more users and generate fees. CoinMarketCap.com, which is one of the biggest aggregators of cryptocurrency market data, said at the time that concerns over inaccuracies are valid. Quote, the overstatement of trading volumes by cryptocurrency exchanges and by implication the understatement of the importance of listed futures suggests that market structure has likely changed considerably since the previous spike in Bitcoin prices in the end 2017 with a greater influence from institutional investors in quote, JP Morgan said, Hmm, that's kind of interesting. So futures are now probably according to this becoming more of a big, more of a bite in the, uh, in the overall market, which is interesting, but in kind of a way, it's kind of not surprising. I mean, you've had some fluctuations in who's playing in that game. You've got, I think was a CBOE uh, dropped out and they'll probably come back. I, I think I heard something about them, them coming back. Um, and then you le- le- left with CME. So there's volatility in the players who's doing this kind of thing. So it wouldn't surprise me that we just kind of, over, have overlooked just how much futures trading is going on. But in either event, it is kind of all about adoption. And it looks like institutional adoption is is uh, getting, I, I don't know, maybe on a runaway roller coaster, but we'll have to see. And that'll do it for your morning roundup. Vital statistics brought to you by BitInfoCharts.com. Bitcoin is at an average price of 9,000. It's above 9,000. 9,342. It looks like the low is going to be over at Simex. 
Making sure I'm right. Simex at 9,000. Oh, no, I'm not right. Hold on. Uh, right BTC has it listed at 9,246. And is there a high here? No, there's not a high. Okay, so um, the there have been only 295,929 transactions over the last 24 hours with an average transaction per hour or average transactions per hour of 12,330. Uh, 1.852 million BTC have been sent over the last 20, uh, 24 hours and 77.1 BTC has been sent, or sorry, 77.1 thousand BTC have been sent per hour on average with an average transaction value of 6.26 BTC and a median transaction value of 0.32 BTC or right around 300 bucks USD, which is sort of where I, I like seeing it lately. Uh, block time is high at 11 minutes, 5 seconds. 0.75 BTC are being taken in fees on a per block basis, and 95.61 BTC have been taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We have lost 13.7% uh, hash rate in the last 24 hours, bringing us below 50 exahashes per second to 47.083 exahashes per second. The last commit to the Bitcoin uh, GitHub repository was yesterday. Ethereum is at 272. Litecoin is at 135.85. Bcash is at uh, 433. BSV is at 222. Ethereum Classic is at 8.73. And Dogecoin is at 0.0032. Now, no, Dogecoin's transactions did not surpass either one of the two shit coins. But we may be saying goodbye to Bcash soon, and I hope so. We need to get rid of at least, well, we need to get rid of both of them, but one of them needs to fall, and I'm hoping, I was actually kind of hoping it'd be BSV, but we we don't know what's going to happen with the whole court thing and Craig. And like I said, today is, uh, we should be looking for news as to whether or not he provided the judge with uh, the information that Bruce Reinhart required, and then we'll be looking forward to June the 28th when he either does or does not stand his, uh, Craig, stand his happy ass in front of said judge and give testimony as to why he's a, such a dipshit. In either event, that's going to do it for your vital statistics. All right, the song to, is brought to you today by Rush. Yeah, I know, Rush is one of my favorite bands, but this is going to be a little bit different. Um, I'm going to try to do four shows this week, and each one is going to feature one of the series. Uh, there's a, a song series that Rush did across four different albums, and the series is called Fear. Um, and I'm just going to read this to you from uh, Fandom. Uh, the Fear series originally was a series of three songs, later four, that cover the concept of fear. It consists of, in order of release, part three, Witch Hunt from Moving Pictures, Part 2, The Weapon from Signals, Part 1, The Enemy Within from Grace Under Pressure, and Part 4, Freeze from Vapor Trails. The first three were released in reverse order. <clears throat> Here they are in order from Part 1 through 4. Part 1 deals with how people have internal fears that affect their decisions. The enemy possibly refers to the phobias people have to deal with, and that was from Grace Under Pressure. The song's called The Enemy Within. Part two is the weapon, 
and it deals with external fears such as weapons, and that's from Signals. Part three is Witch Hunt, and it deals with how fear can be used to control people. Its title is a reference to the Salem Witch Trials, and that was from Moving Pictures. Part four is Freeze, and it deals with the choice you have to deal with fear, fight or flight response. Quote, sometimes I freeze, sometimes I fly, sometimes I fight. End quote. And that was from Vapor Trails in 2002. Um, the interesting thing about this is, is it notes the correct structure of, of how these songs enter and exit. Um, like part one of fear starts suddenly and then fades out at the end. Part two starts by fading in and then ends by fading out. Part three starts by fading in and then ends suddenly. Part four was released 18 years after the previously released segment. Because it wasn't part of the original concept, it starts suddenly and ends suddenly. And everything these this trio of musicians does means you know means something as far as their music is concerned. So we're gonna start here with Witch Hunt.
So Satoshi's treasure today is just a bit disappointing. And the reason is, is because uh, they're asking for more information. So what was the clue that was dropped? Okay. Uh, So this week it's the cult key. And when I go to Satoshi's treasure, the the Satoshi's treasure dot X, Y, Z, it's odd. It says, welcome to the hunt. You are not alone a wallet containing 1 million USD worth of BTC has been split into a thousand keys. Find any 400 of those 1000 keys and Satoshi's treasure is yours to bring more hunters into the fold. Sign up to receive your unique invite link and QR code. You will receive 10 STC points for every person you invite and three STC points for every additional person that they invite. Accumulate the highest number of invite STC points per period by midnight GMT on the final day of each of the remaining month of each remaining month in 2019. And you alone will be granted a unique artifact key delivered physically or by encrypted email. As the hunt grows, these STC points will continue to yield value within the game redeemable for access to unique privileges interesting events and desired objects. So <clears throat> what I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that this is shilling a ref link. And also you got to give your cell phone number to get your code. And right there, I'm, I'm having some difficulty uh, with Satoshi's treasure as it moves forward. Cause it sounds, you know, it sounds more and more, not like KYC kind of, it does sound a little bit like KYC, but not full blown clearly, but still it's like, you know, that, that one key where they, uh, wanted, um, Oh, what they, they wanted you to take, uh, like facial videos of you. And then you were going to do some other stuff with it. But the fact that they wanted to see your face in the video was, I'm sorry, was a little disturbing, um, you know, it's just, there's, and now they want the phone number and I'm just like going, Oh my God, I just hope it doesn't get any worse in either event. Just so you guys know the clan key and the room key have been found. The earth key, the Audubon key are still unknown. And of course the cult keys just got released. And that's the whole thing with shilling a ref link and, um, having somebody have, you know, giving your phone number to yet one more entity. So I'm not sure how I feel about that other than the fact that I am a little disappointed, but anyway, that'll do it for Satoshi's treasure.
Daily Trainwrecked is brought to you today by our good friend Peter Schiff, who says in a tweet, Facebook's new cryptocurrency Libra is bad news for Bitcoin. Facebook will target the very market Bitcoin is counting on for growth. The unbanked and nations with high inflation, Libra will be stable and much easier and cheaper to use as a medium of exchange than Bitcoin. you're killing me, Peter. You're just absolutely killing me here. He just doesn't understand anything about this. But it gets a little worse uh, because he's, Peter Schiff had said that and then, you know, Pomp for uh, Anthony Pompliano comes in and says false. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Like restaurants or an intersection, the more available, the better for each of them. Peter Schiff writes back, not when one restaurant serves delicious food at low prices, Libra, while the other serves overpriced food that makes you sick to your stomach, Bitcoin. The only people who would visit the Bitcoin restaurant are those who don't actually want to eat, store value buyers. Uh, and again, it's like Peter has just refuses to do any kind of research at all into this. And in either event, a Pomp comes back as as the degen gambler that he is and proposes a bet. Uh, if you're so confident, let's bet 10 BTC on whether Bitcoin hits $100,000 US in the next five years should be an easy decision to put your money where your mouth is if you truly believe what you're saying. And of course, he doesn't want to take the bet. He says, seems like a bad bet for me and goes on. It's just, it's just this ongoing train wreck. It's just freaking terrible. And I don't even know why Peter Schiff cares all that much. I mean, it it seems like I don't, I don't, maybe he's gaining followers because of it. I you know I don't know. In either event, it it's very it seems very very clear that he's not doing his research as to why these things matter, and I don't think he ever will. And it's really too bad. And so maybe we should just stop wasting our breath trying to trying to educate this gentleman into why it is that this stuff matters. And um, along those same lines, people who don't really do research, there was a tweet from Coindesk that was, you know, basically shilling their, their article or this particular article. It says, just in the first protocol for issuing tokens via Bitcoin's lightning network is aimed to rival Ethereum's ERC-20, but that's a tall order, writes, at law underscore underscore Quinn. And we won't get into that new shit show that's developing with her. Okay. <laughs> if you haven't seen what, don't know what I'm talking about, try to stay as far away from it as possible. It's more weird identity politics and Bitcoin. But in either event, she writes this piece. Well, that tweet was retweeted by this Cami Russo who says, Bitcoin is trying to become a token minting platform like Ethereum, except with one, weaker security, two, less infrastructure, three, no smart contracts. And that's just a, its own little mini train wreck all by itself because none of that is true. And it's just, I, I, I don't get how it is that she says Bitcoin is trying to become. It's not. Bitcoin is an open source platform and a suite of tool. Well, it's not that a suite of tools can be built on or built a suite of tools can be built for Bitcoin by anyone who knows how to do such a thing. 
Nobody is giving you, you know, nobody is asking permission to be able to do this and you don't need to. And thank God somebody somewhere, and I'm not going to read that Coindesk article because I, I kind of don't care. I, I, I'm not excited about somebody wanting to print more shit coins. I don't care where they print them from. I really don't. I, it's just that we've already been through this and we know that 99.9% of this is just scam shit. It's just, I don't want, you know, I'd rather it not be on Bitcoin, but that's not my choice. That's the choice of the people that know how to do it. And thank God that they can do that. And I can't tell them no. That's what this is all about. So it's not Bitcoin trying to become. That's Camilla's first and fatal mistake here is that Bitcoin isn't trying to do anything. It is what it is. People come along and say, hey, I could probably build X on top of Bitcoin. And they either do or they do not. But if they do, and, it'll, and it happens to align with a pattern of something that a lot of maximalists don't like, then here comes the Ethereum people saying, see, I told you, or some such shit like that. Anyway, it's, it's odd because Camilla's bio, or not odd, it's apropos because Camilla's bio says, financial journalist writing a book on Ethereum with HarperCollins, previously at Bloomberg. So she's, she's invested in Ethereum, so she has a vested interest in doing everything that she can to trash Bitcoin, but she's just showing how ignorant she actually is because Bitcoin isn't trying to do a fucking thing. Bitcoin just is. It's people that are working with Bitcoin that are trying to do stupid shit. Not all, and, and most of them aren't. Only some people are trying to do stupid shit with Bitcoin. In either event, that's your smoldering pile for the day. All right, people, I'm out. Uh, start start your week off with some some fresh new highs, and or not all time highs, but you know they're they're at least fresh highs. Uh, enjoy it. You know, there's there's no reason not to enjoy it. Uh, be good to your fellow man. Uh, stay away from any of the whole gender thing in Bitcoin on Twitter. It's just going to make you make you pissed off and and wonder why people give such a shit about stuff all the time. In either event, I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.